For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, finding a future for some historic Tucson places to become community art spaces. Tune in with an amateur radio club at the University of Arizona. Here scientists share their excitement over a new book that pays tribute to the beauty of the planet Mars. And exploring something new in melody and rhythm with the weiss Softland musical duo. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Late last year, 36 people were killed in a warehouse fire in Oakland, California. At the time, the building was being used by struggling artists, mostly young people who had nowhere else to live and create due to the rising cost of rent. That tragedy added urgency to some questions that were already being asked by the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona. The foundation partnered with ArtSpace, a Minneapolis-based nonprofit, and held meetings with people, including officials, artists, and art organizations, to look for strategies to preserve and grow Tucson's abundant arts community. One goal was to provide artists with access to resources that might keep a disaster like the one in Oakland from happening here. Joining me to share information from the Emerging Report is Debbie Chess Maybe. She is the executive director for the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona. We first met in 2014 when Debbie and I worked together on the arts edition of Arizona Illustrated. So the report was commissioned in November of 2016, and it was a direct result of the Pima County Cultural Plan, which was produced in 2008, that spoke to the need for um, animation of space and the preservation of arts and culture spaces in Tucson and Pima County. Within that cultural plan, it looked at several areas in which artists can utilize resources in the community to further the development of arts as a um, indicator of health and vitality in this region. And what really stuck out was, one, that there was a, a deep need for space for artists to incubate ideas and partner with other organizations and other artists that was of low risk, meaning that they didn't have to own the space, that they could occupy the space, um, share resources, much like a co-working relationship. So there was a need for it. So the report itself highlights three areas that the Arts Foundation has pinpointed. Could you name those three areas for us? The three spaces that we looked at was the Tucson Performing Arts Center, the Dunbar African American Cultural Center, and the Tucson Performing Arts Center. To what extent are these three uh, sites being used today? Are they being used to present arts? So in the case of the Julia Keene School, it was closed in the early 90s um, due to its position over the flight path of davis Mothin, in addition to a reduction in population of the school as demographic shift in the community. Um, the Dunbar Center 
was um, fully populated in the 70s and in the 80s. But again, as desegregation orders um, took place and and impacted that community, the population of the school diminished. Um, With the Tucson Performing Arts Center, it closed its doors in the early 2000s due to structural um, problems with uh, the roof and the foundation. And so it was really populated with the ATC, Arizona Theater Company. But um, to correct those those um, structural problems, they shuttered the doors and it has not been reopened since. So there's going to need to be an investment in infrastructure before... For all three of those properties. I know that this report has just become public, so you probably haven't had time to hear back from the communities surrounding. But I would think that most people would say, space for the arts? Sure, let's do it. And then the second thing they might say is, but are they going to be good neighbors? And our reaction to this is they're already in your community. Um, these spaces already are existing in their, in your community. They're more detrimental to the community under animated. Dark spaces allow for unsafe criminal activity, that these under animated spaces are actually more of a detriment to your community than the fully animated states that they could be in. If we project ahead to a time when all three of these locations are active working art spaces as you hope to create through this report, um, what will that bring to Tucson? How will that make Tucson a better city? It will be reflective of the depth and breadth of who and what we are, particularly with the Dunbar Center and its focus on the African-American community, which is less than... 8% by anybody's given numbers of the demographic in this community um, to elevate the profile of the diversity of this community, to elevate the profile of adaptive reuse of um, buildings, to look to Tucson for a way in which to fully integrate all of the quality of life indicators that are manifest in the arts will show themselves in the animation of these spaces. So we discussed the amount of infrastructure that's going to have to be invested in to make these spaces usable. Um, Where's the funding for that going to come from? What kind of a plan at this point does the Arts Foundation have in mind? This will truly be a public-private partnership. It's going to take resources from um, national funding. It's going to take resources from the city and the county. And those don't necessarily mean dollars. That means really looking at zoning issues and policies that really become barriers to full animation of spaces. So we're not just looking at the dollar amounts that will make these entities thrive, but what's the intellectual capital that can be brought to the table. Now that the report is live and people can access it online, um, how do you want to see that discussion continue? What's going to be the next step for the community-wide discussion about these spaces and the implementation of this plan? The community-wide discussion will be about what does the community see as what is really reflective of art space? Is it really live workspace that that is needed? Is it music venues? Is it more gallery space? We also anticipate that there be a formalized way in which city, county, developers, and the arts community work together to solve 
problems, to address issues of abandoned spaces, empty storefront property. So this is kind of a foundation to a bigger conversation around arts-based community development. This report really positions artists to enter into a conversation about city planning that has never happened before. Debbie Chess Maybe is the executive director of the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona, formerly known as TPAC or the Tucson Pima Arts Council. The complete art space report is available at artsfoundtucson.org. In today's high-tech world, people can communicate with others electronically, even in outer space, in a matter of seconds. But there's one group at the University of Arizona that celebrates an old-school style of communication. It requires a little more know-how and a hands-on approach, but the people who consider it a hobby wouldn't have that any other way, as Bryn Baylor found out. That's the predominant sound whenever members of the U of A ham radio club get together. So we're trying to find a station that's talking right now, and we're looking to break in and see if they'll answer us. Timothy Carswell is a member of what's known formally as the K7UAZ Amateur Radio Club. The University of Arizona research specialist, soon to be a medical resident in New York, is spinning the dial, listening for fellow ham radio operators broadcasting on other frequencies. CQ, CQ, CQ. This is K7UAZ from the University of Arizona's Amateur Radio Club calling CQ. So I think that guy's probably trying to come back to us, but we can't hear him. Ham radio is not like commercial radio or CB radio. It does enable you to listen in and talk with people from anywhere in the world and as far away as the International Space Station. K7UAZ Radio Club member Ben Weber, an IT specialist who works in the mining industry, says it's also a lot of fun. It's a great hobby. There's something really cool about being able to talk to the opposite side of the planet, and that's no exaggeration, with absolutely nothing in between yourself and the person you're talking to but air. The radio club houses its electronic equipment in its ham shack, the usually locked room 303 in the old engineering building. Is this the room here? This is. Oh, it's very echoey. Until recently, it was a rat's nest of tangled wires, hulking metal desks that dated from the Eisenhower era, and all manner of dusty, cast-off, electronic dreck. It has since been emptied out to make way for updated paint, floor waxing, and eventually new, well, make that less old furniture, courtesy of University of Arizona Surplus Property. The changes are meant to turn the unkempt shack into a comfortable study lounge for student club members and a safe place to house radio equipment for their use. Currently, active club membership numbers about 25, including graduate students, university employees, and community members. The latter are often retirees with military or technical backgrounds. Membership is free to students. Others pay $15 a year. And, while older members bring a wealth of knowledge with them, the organization is actively recruiting younger ones, 
Club President Gary Grindle, a recent U of A graduate in management information systems, explains. We're constantly trying to get more students. Obviously, students come and go. I've talked to other university amateur radio clubs, and they have the same issues. Carswell says that renovating the radio room is part of that outreach effort. There's so many fantastic things at the University of Arizona related to outer space, astronomy, satellites, that there's no reason that this club shouldn't be a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line club, and that's where I'd like to see it. Amateur radio was already a popular hobby by 1912, when the federal government decided to require operators to be licensed. And for generations, it was the only way to talk with friends around the world instantly. Sort of like Facebook, before there was Facebook. Today, inexpensive software-defined radio devices enable you to turn a personal computer into your very own amateur radio transmitter receiver. But Weber says there's a lot of value in getting together with fellow hams face-to-face. With the internet, you can look up anything you want immediately and not step foot outside your door. But I think you also miss out on a very important component if you do that. It's really valuable to learn off those who have been there before. After a decline, according to the nonprofit American Radio Relay League, the number of licenses in the United States has been rising steadily since 2008. The Federal Communications Commission says there are more than 740,000 active ham radio licenses on the books. Earlier in May, retired Major General Charles F. Bolden Jr., a former administrator of NASA, met with the club in its revamped radio room. Bolden was a licensed ham radio operator in 1994 when he commanded the space shuttle Discovery and he broadcast to thousands of school kids while in orbit. We're going to do everything we can to make the station great for students that want to be involved in radio, then electronics, software-defined radio. There's all kinds of neat things you can do with amateur radio. It's not just talking one person to the next. More information is at k7uaz.com. This is Bryn Baylor for Arizona Spotlight. For more than 10 years, a University of Arizona-operated camera has been orbiting Mars, aboard NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, taking tens of thousands of photos of the red planet's surface. And it turns out red is just one in the diverse palette of Martian colors. Several hundred images from the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE, comprise a mammoth new book published this week by the University of Arizona Press. AZPM science producer Sarah Hammond spoke to two of the co-authors, Alfred McEwen and Candace Hansen-Koharchek, about their work. When we first saw our images, they were so beautiful, we knew we had to find a way to share them. How did you select the images from your thousands and thousands? Uh, We had a process of asking all the high-rise team members and participants to choose their favorite images and write initial captions for them. And that gave us um, 700 of them or something. We had this large number. And then we went through the painful process of killing our children to call it down to (laughs) about 300 so you wouldn't get a hernia lifting up the book. We were able to start out with 700 beautiful images with the captions um, already drafted. But then uh, Alfred and I went through all of the captions and rewrote them to 
sound more like a single person had written them and have approximately the same level of technical uh, detail. But it was hard. It was hard to take away 300 beautiful shots of Mars. They are a little different than what's posted on the web. The the full images are enormous. And so uh, what we did was to crop out uh, the area of interest showing some feature of particular interest. And then once you crop out a smaller area, you can also uh, stretch the data a little differently to to enhance the contrast relative to just that particular area. And in some cases, you can use uh, techniques to enhance the colors as well. So we gave it a little bit of extra processing, but the raw data is all on our website. The color is uh, taken from our filters, which are not exactly what your eyes would see if you were standing on Mars. And so that gives it sort of an, an extra colorfulness and drama to the, to the color that you wouldn't necessarily see yourself standing there. If there were Martians, they would evolve eyesight more like uh, what our camera has. That's longer wavelengths, see through the dust better. Right. And what do you want the reader to take away from this book? That Mars is beautiful. I mean, that's really the theme here. It is beautiful, and our camera does a great job of revealing that, and diverse. You know, that we really tried to preserve the diversity of Mars and many different trains and landforms. The way that we organized it is so that people, if they don't just open it in the middle somewhere, uh, they can start at the beginning and train their eyes to see the different sorts of uh, features in the different images. So we start with sand dunes which are recognizable. And then we work our way to the uh, more subtle features that are a little more challenging to recognize. And what are some of your favorite images that are included in this book? This, the topic or what you're seeing or the color? But just tell me, you know, what's very important to you? My favorites tend to be the more colorful, the, the more gaudy, actually, colorful ones. I have several picked out that I want to make into scarves. My favorite are those that correspond to special events. For example, the very first image we took from the low orbit, so the full resolution showing the sharpness of Mars. We, we picked a good one on the floor of Alice Marineris, and that's on page 367 of this book. <laughs> that's one. Others that are special are the first image we took of Opportunity Rover, which had just arrived at Victoria Crater, and we actually could see the rover, and we could see the tracks, and you could see where the rover stopped and turned. I looked at that and went, wow, we can spy on them and see what they did. You know, <laughs> Another was uh, Phoenix descending on the parachute. That was uh, a wild idea that I laughed when I first heard it, and the probability of actually getting the picture seemed low, but but we nailed it, and it's a very spectacular picture. We did that again for Curiosity, much bigger parachute, but the first one's always the best. So let's talk about the instrument a little bit. How is high-rise different from other space cameras? High-rise is still the most powerful telescope ever sent to another planet. It's not as powerful as Hubble Space Telescope, for example, but that's in, in Earth orbit. So it takes very high-resolution images, and it's basically a big digital camera. We have 14 CCD detectors that are arrayed across the field of view with extra in the middle for color. And the way it images is really very different because we are racing over the surface at 3.2 kilometers per second. That means for a, a 30 centimeter square pixel on the ground, we have an exposure time of 0. 0.000 something seconds, one seconds. Uh, so what we do is we use T 
TDI, where we basically image that little patch of ground 128 times and add up the signal. So it's a unique camera in that sense. That was Sarah Hammond talking with Alfred McEwen and Candace hansen Koharchek about Mars, the pristine beauty of the red planet, a book that has just been published by the University of Arizona Press. Rhythm and melody are basic musical building blocks, and they've played parts in just about every composition you've ever heard. A pair of musicians, both recent graduates from the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music, are currently using melody and rhythm in ways that may not be new, but they're defying listener expectations as well as easy categorization. Music lover Dan Cruz just spent some time with this duo as they embark on a new cross-country collaboration. It's an interesting musical combination, percussion and saxophone. Two skilled instrumentalists, saxophonist Michael Weiss and percussionist Liz Soflin, make up the Weiss-Soflin duo. For the past five years, they've performed a range of distinctive contemporary music. I recently visited with Michael and Liz at the UA's Jeff Haskell Recording Studio as they rehearsed and recorded several short pieces from their challenging repertoire. Do you have mezzo piano at the top? Uh, no, I have mezzo forte, uh-huh. and then suddenly I'm supposed to be mezzo piano. So why don't we just pretend like that's just a piano, and then we'll do like fortissimo at measure 20, at the end of measure 27. Okay. Just... We met at a performance, I can't remember what performance it was, but we were just both in the audience and Liz had just arrived. Um, And then after that, um, Liz decided that she wanted to do a piece called... um, I Want to Believe. I Want to Believe, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, um, we just started looking up stuff for for saxophone and percussion duo, which previous to that, I didn't even really know it was, you know, an orchestration that anybody wrote for. For the first little bit, we didn't know where to look for music for the duo. And as we were doing research, there's a... There's some good pieces for saxophone and percussion, but there's also a lot of really cheesy ones. <laughs> um, so we spent a lot of time just sitting at the computer and looking at publishers' websites and looking at YouTube. And so I would say about half of our repertoire came from that kind of searching. We're just now getting into the point where we're trying to get composers to write for us. Michael Weiss and Liz Soflin, musical partners for five years are now laying the groundwork to commission an original musical work for their duo. The choice of a composer for the new piece focused on someone whose work was familiar to Liz. And so I started to think, who else could could we do that with? And I knew this composer, Matthew Burtner, from attending a new music festival. He's just doing a lot of interesting things that I don't think anyone else is doing. So... I wanted him to write us a piece, and it also helps that he writes a lot for percussion already, and that he plays the saxophone. I contacted composer Matthew Burtner, a faculty member at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and asked about his approach to composition and the collaborative process that an original commissioned work of music requires. 
I was born in Alaska and my music involves the exploration of environmentalism in music and in issues of embodiment around music and in noise. I've been working on these things for, uh, well, probably 20 years. As a performer, it's something um, special to have music written specifically for you, and it's a little bit, you know, you're, you're contributing to the, the new knowledge production of music through, um, through the commissioning process and through the performing process. And, but when you're commissioning a piece, you don't, you don't have the hindsight of, um, you know, the, the hindsight view you have to, you have to, you're looking in the future and you're imagining what is this going to be in the future. That's a kind of excitement, I think, that um, uh, it's, a, it's different than playing uh, existing works. I typically work with some interaction between the technology and the performer, the human performer. That's on a scale that could be anywhere from very simple triggering of events so that they can line up in time to pretty deeply interactive systems of artificial intelligence where the data from the performer is in dialogue with um, a kind of system in a computer that may, may may push back against that, may play in counterpoint with it, where decisions are being shared across the, the platform. And I do that through um, a mediation between the, the instrumental, acoustic instruments and electronic and computer uh, means. The musical collaboration between Matthew Bertner and the Weiss-Soflin duo will unfold over a period of several months, culminating with the performance of the work in Tucson. And so what this piece is going to end up being, I don't really know what the instrumentation is going to be yet. I told him to make it small enough that I can move it, is the only stipulation that I put on him. But it's going to be for saxophone and percussion and electronics that are interactive. So our sound is going into a computer through microphones and getting processed and creating a separate soundscape that happens while we're playing. And so it's gonna be different every time because it's not a fixed audio track. So we've, al we've almost got a third performer in that, in that sense. Yeah, it's like imperfections on a pool table or something like that, you know? You make the same shot and it's not gonna do the exact same thing every time. Chaos theory. The Weiss-Soflin duo will initiate their commission of a new original work by composer Matthew Bertner this summer with the hope of premiering the work sometime in the fall of 2017. After its initial performance, we'll share it with our ACPM audience. Special thanks for help with the creation of this story goes to Wiley Ross, the director of the Jeff Haskell Recording Studio at the UA Fred Fox School of Music. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Dan Cruz. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>